you know, there are fossils that are in the hundreds of millions of years old. So when you ask somebody who is observant, well, how do you, how could you possibly kind of um, uh, put these things together? How do you coincide them? How does that happen? So there's one very simple explanation, and that is, well, a year uh, in, in, in biblical years is not the same as year in our years. Okay, well, that could be, but what's a year equal to? A hundred million, a billion, you know? The world is considered to be somewhere, I think the number is right, uh, somewhere in the four, five billion years ago that the earth was created out of a kind of a collecting of dust that squeezed up together. I think that's the right amount, but I could be wrong. It could be about eight billion also, but somewhere in that range. So that's explanation number one. Explanation number two, as the world is really only 5,784 years old, but all the fossils and all that stuff that you see there was put there on purpose 5,784 years ago. It's like, <clears throat> you know, they, the, those fossils were animals that never existed. They just were fossils that were put there to, to sort of, you know, fool us to think that maybe the world is, is more than 5,700 years old. But I mean, <clears throat> you have to understand that, you know, since ancient times, when people didn't know anything, they needed explanations. Everybody does. They wanted to know why are things happening as they're happening. And since they didn't have explanations for this, they looked up in the sky and they saw how the sky changes. They saw how the sun was changing direction. They saw the moon, of course, was changing size. Um, they looked up and they saw all the uh, constellations. And they figured somehow or other that all these things that they didn't know about was affecting life on Earth um, as we know it, because they couldn't figure out any other way to explain what was happening that was not in their control. But needless to say, um, until the Greeks came along, they didn't really know anything about science at all. And so one explanation in a way was as good as another since they didn't know anything at all. What is remarkable to me is that since we now know how the solar system works, we don't know everything, but we certainly know how it works. You know, wh why would people continue to insist that the world is 5,700 years old? I mean, that's the part that I don't get. Um, you know, there are certainly, there is a place um, for faith in the world, but to claim things that are completely demonstrably untrue just debases that kind of a faith, in my opinion. So that's that. Anyway, that's not the subject, but just something to think about, you know. Uh, um, if, if you were really a deep student of the Talmud, and you read a lot of the things that are written there. Some of them are so fantastically ridiculous that you wonder, like, 
why is it not possible for the leaders of the religion today to say, look, in those days they just didn't know. So they made stuff up. But once you say that every single word in the Torah is not true, and every single word in the Talmud is not true, then of course you're challenging the whole basis, the whole building can come down. Uh, because who's to know which part is true and which part isn't true? I think I was reading one, one, I could be wrong, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. They once had, in the Talmud it's written to, how could you tell, if you have to prove if a woman is a virgin, how do you do it? So they said, well, one thing you could do is hold, take a barrel of wine and hold her over the barrel of wine somehow. And, you know, uh, something would happen if she's a virgin and, and uh, other thing would happen if she wasn't. You know, like, okay, you know, all kinds of people practice all kinds of things in those days. And some of these things were not, you know, some of things, these, many of these things were in common with other people who live around there. Which is another thing that bothers me, since I'm just uh, sort of talking uh, here and there. Sometimes, there are many words, there are many words in the Bible that are only written one time. There's only one time that these words are written. Often these things are names of plants or names of animals or things like that, you know? And, and, and the, of course, the commentators on the Bible, whether it's people in the Mishnah or in the Talmud or even Rashi who, who wrote a, a phenomenal um, sort of uh, translation of it, they, if they didn't know what it was, they had to kind of make up something. And they used all kinds of ideas, whether it's ideas of association or whether it's ideas of looking at the word itself and seeing what that word sounds like. Those are the two ways that they could figure out what a word might mean. Sometimes they were right, of course. Sometimes they were wrong, of course. No one, no one really has a way to know. But what they didn't do, what they should have done, is to say, okay, let's see what other related languages were spoken in the Middle East at the time, and do those languages have a similar word? Because if they do, then you could look at the context of that word and then figure it out going to the Hebrew language and saying, okay, well, this must mean this, because in Arabic there's a word that's close, because in uh, Akkadian there's a word that's close, because in Ugaritic there's a word that's close. These were languages that were spoken, you know, 2,000 years ago in a similar region. So they were all Semitic languages, so they all have common roots. So the words, in many, many cases, are the same thing. But no. Because the Talmudists say, uh, or, or the attitude was, well, the outside world has not much to teach us. And we're certainly not going to go back and study history. And we're certainly not going to go back and study the societies other than Jews who lived in the Middle East at the time. Therefore, it's better for us to kind of make up explanations on our own uh, without any kind of comparative uh, philology or something like that. So that's another one of my complaints. And, and modern day scholars, biblical scholars of today, 
who have done these things, they've come up with great explanations for these words that are not the same as the ones that were given by Rashi or by, or by uh, you know, the Talmud or anything like that. Anyway, it's just a, a little something. So let me see where we are. Where's our great introducer? Where is she? Angie's not here today. Oh, Angie's so not here today. I'm going to miss the high heels, you mean, or what? No high heels, oh. but I will introduce. Okay, okay, okay. For those of you who don't know, this is Mr. Hershey Dwoskin with Hi. the headlines, and this is our first of the season for the fall. Um, we are also streaming live on Zoom, so there are people tuning in from home. So if you are sick, please tune in from home in future. Thank you. And also, that there's outside, I think in the corridor, there isn't the sign that says to come downstairs. I didn't see anything like that. I put it up, unless did someone you, has taken it yeah, down. I, I don't know, maybe I missed it. Could be, it's dark in there, but I don't know. If you did, good. I will check upstairs okay. in case people are wandering. So thank you so much. <laughs> good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for all for coming again. Uh, every Tuesday into November. So I'm here till mid-November, and I'm not sure, uh, you know, uh, you can ask Danielle, she had asked me for the last two weeks of November, but I don't know if I could do them on Zoom or not, Zoom only or not, but maybe she could just email me or something like that. But until mid-November, I'm here, yeah. Please stand by for future dates after that. Yeah. Okay, so I have a subject that I wanted to speak about today which is Morocco because of the great earthquake that's there. But I couldn't stop myself from uh, speaking about two most remarkable statements that were, that were published this week, spoken practically in the same place by very different people, um, both completely outrageous uh, distortions of the Holocaust, and, um, you know, which has been distorted so many times in history. And so it, it, you, have to, you have to hear about them if you haven't already heard. So one of them is the tired statements by Mohammed Abbas, who's uh, Mahmoud Abbas, who's the head of the uh, Palestine Authority, who's PhD, he wrote a PhD in Arabic, and the PhD in Arabic had something to do with the causes of the Holocaust. Okay, that was his whole PhD topic, which needless to say wasn't anti-Semitism. It was needless to say something else. But he made two statements today, which have been, he has made before. One statement is that the European Jews who were killed in the Holocaust weren't really Jews. So that's statement number one. Statement number two, the reason these so-called non-Jews were killed had nothing to do with anti-Semitism uh, by the Nazis, but had to do with their behavior of being greedy, manipulative, usurious, and, 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 and bad people. And so, you know, the Germans mistakenly took all of these bad traits of the Jews as an excuse to kill them. Although those were his two statements. So where does the first statement come from? How is it possible that the Jews of Europe, Ashkenazi Jews, are not really Jews? Now the reason, needless to say, that somebody would say something like this 
is to say, well, if these people were not Jews, therefore they had no claim on Palestine and no claim on Israel, and therefore they're foreigners who don't deserve to have a country in Israel since uh, they, they or their ancestors never lived in Israel. That's in essence the, the, uh, the uh, argument that he makes. Not for the first time, and he's not the only one who said this. Um, in fact, um, how come the name just escapes me? Uh, anyway, it might come back to me. But where does this argument come from? It comes from the historical fact that in the 8th and 9th centuries, in central Russia, uh, around the Caspian Sea or between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, there was a tribe of people called the Khazars um, who were nomadic tribesmen of Turkish, uh, Turkish uh, language, Turkic language. And for one reason or another, the head of this whole tribe and his family converted to Judaism. And when he converted to Judaism, he had the most of his followers convert also. So this was a group of nomadic people who, un, uh, like many others in the past, many other non-Jewish groups, not individuals, but groups, converted to Judaism in the past. Um, and this was one of them. Uh, they ruled for somewhere around 200 years before they were kind of overcome by other Turkic tribes. And they kind of disappeared into the, into the shadows of history. They don't have a Khazar people today, but people certainly wrote about them in, in the time. So they definitely did exist and all kinds of historians who passed through the area wrote about them. So they did exist. So Mr. Abbas's theory is that these people didn't disappear at all. They just moved um, westward into Europe and became Ashkenazi Jews. Which, of course, is, you know, it's, it's non-historical uh, nonsense. They never did move. There are no Turkish-speaking Turkish people who moved to the West uh, in Europe. The, Turkic, the Turks who moved into Turkey did move there, but they moved there from Persia, and they moved in the year 1000, so roughly around the same time. But the Turks who moved there were not Jews. They were Muslims already by the time they got into Turkey. So, the, you, you know, you can't confuse one and another. Uh, besides the fact that we have records of Ashkenazi Jews living in France, uh, living in um, the Roman Empire from the time the Romans were there, and uh, the Yiddish language which developed out of German somewhere around 900 AD, was already, you know, going and, and strong by the time the Khazars were found 2,000 miles away to the east. So, you know, the, the putting one and one together and making two did not work in the case of the Khazars. It was Kessler, I think it was Arthur Kessler, that's right. I think he had that theory also. Um, that's what I think, I'm not sure, but I think it was him. Now, so what happened as a result of this anti-Semitic theory? Most interesting things happen. Uh, the mayor of Paris 
uh, called up Mr. Abbas and says, you remember the medal I gave you, uh, you know, for standing up for, uh, for, you know, human rights? Well, I want you to send it back because it's, what you said is completely wrong. And she pointed out how many thousands of Parisian Jews uh, who were not Khazars, who were not money lenders, who were not criminals, were just picked up, including children, uh, who were just picked up and sent to the concentration camps to be killed. She made that very clear to him. Uh, the usual, you know, long list of Jewish organizations, needless to say, also, uh, you know, expressed their horror and dismay. But most interesting, a hundred Palestinian writers put their name on a petition to say this is absolute nonsense and you're just discrediting the Palestinian cause by, by putting out these kind of ridiculous statements. So I think that was kind of, uh, in a way, encouraging, you could say. So that's statement number one about the Holocaust. How about statement number two? The statement number one is uh, what I would call old news. Um, uh, he was recorded saying this kind of stuff going back into the 1980s. And sometimes when he's caught out, he says, well, I'm sorry I hurt anybody's feelings. But, you know, needless to say, uh, either he believes it or he feels by saying this it serves some purpose or other. Let's leave that one aside. Now the next one. This one, you might have heard of again. This was in the news. Prime Minister Netanyahu has said all kinds of super, uh, what would I call them, uh, let's say. He's made statements which are, which are uh, very um, negative and, and have received all kinds of condemnation all around the world, and including in Israel where for 33 straight weeks, hundreds of thousands of people are demonstrating against him. He said something that he thought was very innocuous. Rosh Hashanah is coming up, the Jewish New Year is coming up. Traditionally, ultra-Orthodox Jews make a pilgrimage to Uman in the Ukraine, which is the burial place of the Breslov Rebbe. The Breslov Rebbe died in 1810. He was some kind of a sort of a mystic Hasidic Rebbe. And when he, before he died, he said, anybody who comes to visit me at my gravesite will receive all kinds of blessings from God. That's what he said. So it's been a tradition for people to come to pray at his gravesite on Rosh Hashanah. And especially after the Soviet Union fell apart and, you know, free uh, travel was uh, encouraged in Russia. Thousands and thousands of ultra-Orthodox Jews have made pilgrimages to the city of Uman uh, in central the Ukraine. And I mean, for, for one week or 10 days, the whole city turns into a big ultra-Orthodox camp with kosher restaurants, hotels, Airbnbs. It's like the city makes all of their money in 10 days from all these ultra-Orthodox people. Taxi drivers, bus drivers, uh, guides, uh, you name it. They're all out there, uh, you know, trying to uh, make some money off of all these pilgrims. And uh, indeed, some people have stayed there all year long to be, to be uh, you know, close to the tomb. And I think Chabad has uh, opened a, uh, you know, a hostel over there. 
So it, it has become, a, we're not talking about a couple of hundred people, I'm talking about 15 to 25,000 people coming there all at one time, all in Rosh Hashanah. It also serves the purpose in a certain sense of giving these ultra-Orthodox Jews who live such controlled lives, to give them a chance to kind of just break out, you know, just go crazy, drink, dance, do all kinds of things. Um, I, I heard it tell that, you know, every prostitute in the Ukraine shows up in Uman during those weeks. So, uh, you know, and so long as a prostitute is non-Jewish, it's allowed by Jewish law. But the question is, you know, how do they know she's non-Jewish? She could be lying, you know, but they don't, they don't, they don't look at that too carefully. Anyway, I'm not saying this is a Bacchanalian, uh, you know, uh, uh, orgy, but what I'm saying is, is that people from all ages go there and, and kind of just burst out of their normal daily lives. And lately, women have been going there also. Normally, it was just, just, just for men, uh, male Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews. But lately, women have been going there too, and obviously, they take their own, uh, you know, their own way of uh, of celebrating the uh, the Rosh Hashanah over there. You always would ask, well, how is it possible that you could celebrate Rosh Hashanah away from your family? It's like one of the more important holidays, but it's become a tradition that um, you know male ultra Orthodox Jews can go to Uman and and you know then come back and then you know. They'll, they'll celebrate Yom Kippur together and not Rosh Hashanah. Anyway, all of this is leading up to Mr. Netanyahu's statement, which said, basically, here's what he wanted to say. What he wanted to say is Ukraine is a dangerous place now. The Russians are, are you know, sending missiles all over and anywhere in the country. You have no way of knowing in advance where they're going to go. The Ukraine has very few facilities to rescue people. The hospitals are, you know, not not the best. And I would advise you just not to go. It's not safe. That's what he should have said. What did he say? He said, you know, I suggest you don't go to uh, the Ukraine this Rosh Hashanah because God has not always been friendly to the Jews in Ukraine or to the Jews in Europe. What he meant by that was that the, the, that the Holocaust happened in the Ukraine and you can't count on God to protect you if you go to this pilgrimage because look at what God did, you know, in the 1940s. That's what he said. Well, the storm that this statement caused was unbelievable. Unbelievable. The, his, remember, he's in a coalition with ultra-Orthodox Jews who are of Ashkenazi descent. That, that's one of the pillars of his uh, uh, coalition. They blew up. Rabbi Eichler made the following statements. Now, what do the, ultra, what's the ultra-Orthodox explanation for the Holocaust? What, what often comes up? Jews suffer the Holocaust because they do not keep the mitzvot. Okay? That's statement number one. 
And Mr. Netanyahu, you don't keep the mitzvot. You don't eat kosher. You don't do this. You don't follow the law. Therefore, who are you to tell us it was your guys who caused the Holocaust, and now you're saying, you know, that it's God who caused the, caused the Holocaust? Shame on you. So that was one of the more moderate statements that came up. There were a lot more, um, there were much more critical statements that came up. Um, uh, statements like, um, uh, I'm trying to think now. Um, uh, well, that, that gives you the idea, that gives you the, the gist of it anyway. So um, what the, they said was, if this is your thinking, Mr. Netanyahu, if you think that God is the cause of problems for the Jewish people, we have no business of being in a coalition with you. That's, that's the, um, that's the uh, kind of, uh, uh, that must have sent you know, chills up his spine because that's what they said. And not only did they say it, but it was published in their newspaper and on their radio stations. So, um, you know, the, so in other words, there were two statements using the Holocaust, or three, you could say, because the response of the, the rabbis was the third one. Um, you know, misusing the Holocaust, again, for what I would call partisan reasons or for, I don't know, you know, for something like that. And uh, they all came at the, they all came in the same time, in the same place, you know, Mr. Uh, Abbas said it in Ramallah, and, uh, and uh, the member of Knesset said it in Jerusalem, they're like five, five to seven miles apart, and, you know, these statements have gotten worldwide exposure and worldwide uh, comment, and um, it's uh, quite uh, amazing that that, you know, what's, what lies under the surface. In other words, these feelings were always there, but, you know, you have a chance for it to come out, and boom, look at what happens. And the, 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 the shaking is still going on, you know. They, they, they didn't finish. The shaking is still going on in that case. So anyway, that's a statement. But you know what? That wasn't my subject of today. My subject of today is about Morocco because of the earthquake. So since I have this lovely little map here, and I visited Morocco two and a half years ago, and I would highly recommend it to anybody who wants to go to a beautiful, interesting, safe, um, uh, wonderful country. So this is a kind of a sort of a map of Morocco. Marrakesh is about over here. The earthquake happened about over there. So about 70 kilometers away. Uh, this is the biggest city, Casablanca, which is the commercial capital and the modern city of Morocco. Uh, Rabat is the capital city of the country. And uh, Tangier is the one here, 
And uh, what else do we have? So this is Marrakesh. And all of this is desert here. Desert, 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 desert. And there's chains of mountains like this. Chains of mountains go like this. There's, in other words, here's the mountains. Here's the mountains. And this is a valley in between the mountains. So these are called the Atlas Mountains. And um, so that gives you a bit of a picture. It's a Mediterranean climate all here, all up over here. Mediterranean climate along the coast. And then when you get inside, you get into the high areas, the mountains where they got snow in the winter time. And then on the other side of the mountains is desert, part of the Sahara Desert over here. All this is the Sahara Desert here, all that over there. So how many people live in Morocco? Take a guess. The same amount as in Canada, 40 million. So that's, it's quite a populated country, obviously a lot smaller than Canada. So what's unique about Morocco is that it has a coastline on the Atlantic and a coastline on the Mediterranean. So, and on this side is Algeria. Up here is, is Spain and Gibraltar. So Gibraltar is kind of about over here. And the rest of it is Spain. And over here is nothing, right? Go all the way across to North America that way. Um, going down here is this big issue here. Um, this here is called the Sahara. This was once called Spanish Sahara, so we'll put Spanish Sahara over there. And this piece of territory goes down, it's almost as long as this piece of territory here. So it goes all the way down, and at the bottom is Mauritania. So you have the Sahara Desert, which is like sort of here, which separates black Africa at the bottom from the Arab Africa at the top. And you have this kind of big stretch of nothing in the middle. Um, so Morocco is in the far northwest corner of Africa. If you keep on going this way, you come to Egypt. If you keep on going down, you come to the bottom of Africa. And you keep going across and you have the Sahara Desert that goes all the way into Sudan uh, on the east side. So you know, it's, if Africa is like a rectangle, this is the northwestern corner of it. Um, the, uh, the um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the history, very kind of not, not in that much detail, but just for interest's sake. Um, the uh, Mediterranean here formed the end of the world in the ancient times. Nobody really went across the Atlantic, but the Mediterranean itself was well known, well populated, well settled, you know, even before Roman times. So the first sort of recorded people with the civilization who came here were the Carthaginians, uh, and they came from Phoenicia, from Lebanon, and they were displaced by the Romans who conquered um, this section here and made it part of their empire. And when I was visiting there, they took us to a place somewhere over here. I'm not saying exactly where it is, somewhere over here. 
It was an ancient Roman city. And on the gates it said, this is the end of the world. Meaning that anything to the south was a desert. Anything to the west was the ocean. And this was the end of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire stretched, you know, in, in its day from here all the way, you know, not quite to India, but certainly a good piece of the way into, uh, into Persia. And they sort of stopped at Persia. That was the end of the Roman Empire. Where the Turkish-Persian border is, that was more or less it. So they certainly controlled a lot of territory. The Romans collapsed in 400, and then, um, and then uh, after that, uh, other groups came in. But who are the people who are native to living? Who are the people who are native to living in Morocco? Were they the Arabs? So yes or no? Good, good guess. So they weren't the Arabs. They were Berbers. The Berber people are still living there and have always lived there. And the Berber people live in Morocco. They live in Algeria. They live in Tunisia. They live in Mali, uh, which is the next country going down this way, in Niger, also the next one going down this way. These are people who have always lived there. Um, the Arabs came after Muhammad's invention of Islam. The Arabs spread quickly, and I mean quickly, within 100 years. They got from Saudi Arabia to Morocco. They got from Saudi Arabia to Iraq. They got from Saudi Arabia into uh, Syria and Israel. Uh, they really moved very, very fast. Not only did they do that, but in 711 AD, they actually came like this and crossed into Spain. And they took Spain over, not completely, but from somewhere around 700 to 1492, uh, parts of Spain were ruled by the Arabs. The first guy who crossed, his name was Tarek. He established an empire. And Gibraltar is, Jebel is a mountain in Arabic, and Jebel Tariq is what they call the mountain of Gibraltar, which is Gibraltar. That's how it got its name, Jebel Tariq. And this guy Tarek went all the way up through Spain into France, into France and was defeated by Charlemagne in the mid 700s, 740. Imagine if the Arabs had managed to defeat Charlemagne, Europe would have been Arab eventually, Muslim I should say, you know? But that defeat led this, the Arab uh, troops to retreat from France and go into Spain, and they stayed there in part for 700 years. You know, yeah. For 700 years. Um, and the, the, um, the uh, leaders of these different rulers of Spain, they traditionally were based in Morocco. So the, the, the pathway from Morocco to Spain was just like, like uh, Auto Route 40, you know, it was like uh, nothing. You just go from one place to another, it was like all the same place. And um, and that's what, that's what happened. So uh, the Jewish people, they didn't come to Morocco with the Arabs. They came with the Romans. So they were there when the Romans expanded, 
The Jews were there. The Jews were living in Morocco before the Arabs were living in Morocco, in, in many cases. In many cases, the Jews living with the Berbers converted Berbers into Jews. So they were, remember I mentioned that there were non-Jewish groups that, that, um, that lived in the olden times. So the Berbers, some of the Berber tribes converted to Judaism and had a Jewish queen uh, in one case. So that's just a kind of a footnote, a footnote. But when the Arabs came, the, when the Arabs came, they slowly kind of overcame the Berbers. They never did completely, but to the point where the Berbers became sort of second class and the Arabs were first class because the Arabs were the rulers. Arabic was a language of administration. Arabic was a written language and Berber was never written down. So, you, you, no, they're not Arabs. They're not Arabs because the language that they speak is not Arabic. And in essence, that's what tells you who an Arab is if they speak Arabic. So you could have Christian Arabs, you could have Muslim Arabs, you know. <clears throat> uh, but the Berbers today, today in Morocco, the Berbers are ab about. Now, this is very difficult because statistics are, are not easy to come by, but they're about a third of the country. So they're a very large part of the country. But they're not, you know, the majority anymore. But there's many, many intermarriages and many, many people who have Berber backgrounds, but they're not Berbers anymore. They speak Arabic. Um, what happened in 1492? Columbus discovered America. That is correct. I mean, the people who lived in America, they knew they knew they were living in America, right? But he, so he didn't discover anything. But for Europeans, he discovered America. For the Mohawks, they were always around, so they would have not said that he discovered America. He visited, that we could say. In 1492 was the end of the last Muslim kingdom in Spain, the kingdom of Granada. You've been to Granada, you know, Granada is a beautiful Alhambra over there, beautiful building. So that was the end of the last kingdom of Spain. Like I said, the first one was in the 711, so think of it, you know. But it wasn't as if all of Spain was ruled by Muslims all the time. That isn't so. But they ruled pieces of it all the time, different pieces in different times. More or less from the north, they were there less time. And in the south, they were there more time. So in 1492, there were the royal couple, uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, Ferdinand of Aragon, Isabella of Castile, they got married. They together defeated the last Muslim emir in Granada and proclaimed Spain a Catholic state, which means that the non-Catholics all of a sudden after living together with Christians for 700 years, because the Muslims never forcibly assimilated the Spanish who were living in Spain. They never outlawed the Spanish language. They never outlawed the Catholic Church. Those people could, were practicing Catholics and speaking Spanish for all those years that the Arabs ruled the country. But when Isabella and Ferdinand got into power, they decided to kick out all the non-Catholics. 
And starting with, of course, the Jews, of course. So the Jews were given 30 days to convert, to leave. What was the third choice? Right, to be killed. Nobody took the third choice. They all took choice one or choice two. So where did they go? Where's the first place you would go? To Morocco, right? It's like eight miles away. You just take the boat and there you are. And that's where that was the first choice. After that, you could decide to go elsewhere. In the early 1500s, the, the Sultan of Turkey invited all of the, any Jew who wanted to come live in his lands and practice their religion and help develop the Ottoman Empire, which many of them did. But many stayed in Morocco. What about the Muslims who were living in Spain? What happened to them? Were they kicked out in 1492 also? They weren't. And the reason is simple, because there were so many of them that the Spanish did not want to cause a civil war uh, right after they um, conquered Granada. So they were given more time to leave. They were actually, finally, the edict of kicking them out, I think, was in 1609. But they were dispersed. So they weren't allowed to live together in the towns where they were living. They were told, go live somewhere else in Spain. Uh, and of course, many of them also left at the same time the Jews did and shortly thereafter. They, and they came to live in Morocco because, you know, their friends, family and, 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 and countryside was in Morocco also. Now, when I went to Morocco, they explained to us how these newcomers after 1492 affected life in Morocco itself. It was really interesting. So they spoke, first of all, from an architectural standpoint. So if you don't mind, I'm going to just turn this page here. I'm going to try. Let's see what happens here. You'd think it would be easy, but there we are. Kind of stuck on the bottom. So, for those of you who know, you know, what the Middle East looks like, you have a street here like this, and you have a nice big house next to the street. But, all you have is a little door like this to go inside, a gate, usually pretty small and pretty narrow. So what you see from the outside when you're looking at the house is just a wall, it's a continuous wall, you see nothing. Once you go through this gate, what do you find? You find a nice, beautiful, big square in the middle with a fountain of water, water kind of over here. And you have the house overlooking like this. You have the balconies on the second floor uh, overlooking the um, interior courtyard. That's a traditional Middle Eastern house. To this very day, you'll find loads of them. Well, what the Arabs and Jews did when they came to Morocco is they changed the system. They changed the system because in Spain, they didn't have, they didn't live that way. Part, this is done for security reasons, right? So nobody can, you know, enter your house. There's a wall with a gate. You bar the gate and no one can come in. But in Europe, there was less um, insecurity. 
And so they didn't build their houses that way. The way, the way they did them was, they had the house close to the street like this, over here. And what they did here on the second floor, because I can't make it, you know, I'm not the best drawer, but they had overhanging balconies. So this is the second floor. You had the overhanging balconies looking at the street. So you can go upstairs, sit outside on your porch, you know, with your tea, and look down at the people and see all the people, see what's doing outside in your neighborhood. Because here you couldn't have any idea what was going on outside because your door was locked. So this style of architecture was brought to Morocco by the Jews and Arabs who left Spain. And he showed them to us. We saw them in Fez, we saw them in Meknes, and it was clear that these were very different from what was there before. Besides that, they brought all kinds of new food, that they, food and recipes that they brought from Spain and introduced into Morocco, all kinds of, uh, uh, for sure, things that are made with tomatoes because where did tomatoes come from anyway? Yeah, they came from the New World. So, uh, you know, in 1492, by, by 1500, Spanish people were eating tomatoes that were grown, you know, uh, that were brought with them from the New World. Tomatoes, tobacco, pumpkins, uh, squash, corn. None of these things existed in Europe before. If you think of Italian food and you think of tomato sauce, wow, they must have been eating this in Roman times. The Romans never saw a tomato. The Italians never saw a tomato. So, you know, we have to understand how, when we talk today about uh, what's it called, uh, cultural appropriation, this whole idea of cultural appropriation is, 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 is BS, it's wrong, because people have been borrowing things from people forever. So anyway, that's a story. Um, go back to here. So um, in the 1500s and 1600s, the kingdoms and the sheikdoms who were ruling in here got stronger. In some cases, they went all the way down and conquered um, uh, the empires, the black empires who were in the south of Morocco in, in uh, what would be the bottom of Mauritania today, what might be Senegal today. They really went far south. Um, and the remarkable thing is that in 1777, the United States de declared its independence in 1776. They were still fighting with Great Britain until 1781. The first country to recognize the United States was Morocco in 1777. In the early 1780s, Morocco signed a treaty with the United States that said, Morocco will protect any American ships in the Mediterranean. That treaty is still in force today. It's the longest treaty that America has signed that's still in force with any country. So they were not nobodies in those days. Of course, by the 1800s, Europe got stronger. Uh, the Portuguese started to put some forts up, you know, along the coast over here. Um, but they never went inside the country. But the Spanish and the French really had interest in trying to take over Morocco because of its strategic location. 
1884, the Spanish occupied northern Morocco, like this part here. And in 19, and the French came in in the middle of Morocco. And in 1904, they, they made us kind of an agreement between French, Spain and France to say, okay, this part we will be in charge of for Spain, and this part we will be in charge of for France. And this part we will be in charge of for Spain. And so they made a kind of a, you know, like the Europeans did everywhere in Africa, they divided it up just all without asking the local people, without um, anything. They just used their military force to take over these countries and that was that. Um, <clears throat> and when they took over these countries, of course, they introduced what, you know, might be called modern society, modern development, uh, transportation networks, schools, hospitals, uh, communications, um, you know, telephones, all, all the trappings of modern life were introduced into Morocco by the Europeans, starting in the late 1800s and going as long as they were still the bosses. There was resistance. The resistance was mostly by the Berbers, because the Berbers are kind of people who are very strongly independent and say, we don't want anybody, you know, looking after us. But, you know, they were put down in 1927, there was a major revolt that was put down. Uh, and the French and Spanish had to send in their armies to, to do that. Now, so all these Europeans finally show up, they put up schools, they put up modern, they build sort of modern cities beside the old cities. They build modern cities right beside the old cities. The old cities were like, you know, you can imagine if you've been to Marrakesh or if you've been to Jerusalem, you know what an old city is like with walls and brick buildings, uh, mud brick buildings, but they built modern cities beside them. Now, the Jewish community in Morocco then were attracted to this European influence. If they built schools, the Jews sent their kids to their schools because they could learn French, they could learn Spanish, and with those, with, with those languages, the Jews became kind of intermediaries between the colonial power and the Muslim Arab Moroccans. And for them, of course, it was fantastic, just as it was for any minority anywhere in the colonized world. So in India, Pakistan, in uh, pretty well in, in Malaya, in um, pretty well throughout the colonized world, the colonialists picked minorities who they figured would be loyal to them. Uh, let's say in the Middle East, it would be the Jews, the Armenians, the Greeks, the Italians who lived in Egypt. Um, you know, every country had its own minority who was a, a, a sort of appointed or who gathered to help the colonial power, which is all fine and good until the colonial power picks up and leaves. And then, you know, you're kind of looking around and saying, oops, you know, maybe we picked the wrong side. Um, so the Jews living in the north of, 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 uh, uh, of Morocco became Spanish speaking. The ones in the center and the south were French-speaking, as were the general population. So, you know, it wasn't just, 
you know, the Jews who learned and who cooperated with the colonial power, everybody did. Because that's how you got your jobs, that's how you made your living, etc., etc., etc. Needless to say, the more out in the countryside you got, the less contact there was with the, with the administration. Um, but France never formally annexed Morocco to make it part of Morocco. And Spain, the same thing. It was not like Algeria over here, which Algeria for, in 1830 was made a physical part of France. If you saw a map of France from the 1800s, you saw France and Algeria were like one country. And Algeria sent deputies to Paris, you know, to the parliament. But that didn't happen in Morocco. The royal family of Morocco stayed the royal family of Morocco. In the 1600s, I was mentioning that they were called the Alawite. Now, you know, in Syria, they also have Alawites. It's the same name, but a completely different, um, different uh, association and different family. But the Alawite in Morocco claim descent from Mohammed. That's very important. So if, if you're directly descended from Mohammed, it means you're holy, you're special, you have powers. And the French did not want to kick out the royal family of Morocco because they were afraid of what would happen if that would happen. So um, the, um, the uh, okay, World War II comes, 1940, what happens? Germany conquers France, and Germany appoints a new government in France called the Vichy government, based in Vichy, France. And who was the head of that government? Marshal Pétain, right. What we have to understand is that Marshal Pétain didn't just rule France. Everything that belonged to France became part of Pétain's world, whether it was Morocco, whether it was all the French colonies in Africa, um, whether it was even as Lebanon and Syria, um, those places were ruled by the French administration based in Paris under the control of Marshal Pétain. Did he control St. Pierre Miquelon? Absolutely, for what it's worth, which is nothing. Um, who controlled Marshal Pétain? Of course, the Nazis. The Nazis asked Marshal Pétain to ask the Moroccan king administration for a list of all the Jews living in Morocco. How many were there? Somewhere around 300,000. Around, no clear number, but around 300,000. Some people say 500,000. But somewhere around 300,000 Jews lived in Morocco. The king of Morocco, Mohammed V, he's the namesake for the current king, the king of Morocco then was Mohammed V. Who's the king of Morocco today? Mohammed VI. Okay. They don't go backwards in numbers, they go, you know, forwards. So Mohammed V told the chief marshal, the governor of France, the governor of Morocco, he said, listen, the Jews of my kingdom are my citizens. I'm not giving you nothing. 
nothing. And I dare, if you touch the head of one of the Jews of my country, you know, you're going to have a rebellion on your hands. And it wasn't the biggest priority for Mr. Pétain to round up the Jews of Morocco, because basically, this is already 1943. Things were already turning not so good for the, uh, for the, uh, for the uh, you know, for the Nazis. Uh, shortly after, uh, I think it was the end of 43, beginning of 44, Eisenhower landed in Morocco, and Morocco, uh, the, the French administration was kicked out, and a new French administration backed by Charles de Gaulle was put in power in Morocco. So that was the end of that. That was the end of the threat to the Jews in Morocco. Um, the war ends. The people of Morocco uh, start to demand independence. Uh, like everywhere else, you know, in the third, in the colonized world, people wanted their independence after the Second World War. And in Morocco, it happened in 1956. 1948, Let's mention that. Israel became independent. So when Israel became independent, they, of course, they went and they asked for Jews living everywhere in the Middle East to come live in Israel. Now, the Jews who were living in other Arab countries, there were violent pogroms and attacks against them. I, I, sorry, I just have to make sure, I'm going to ask you to please help me in this. I have to leave here at 3 o'clock at the end of the class because I have another class of teaching, 3.30. And I don't say the same thing because I don't, I don't like boring myself. But um, um, so in 1948, the Israeli government sent agents all over the Arab world to get the Jews to come out. Where did they come out from? Egypt, Libya, uh, the Sudan. Iraq, especially Iraq, Syria. Uh, those are the main places, some you know, from Turkey, some from Persia, but those are the main places. The Jews were literally kicked out of Egypt and Libya, told, take a suitcase, take two suitcases, get out, and we're stamping your passport saying not valid for re-entry. So that was that. What happened in Morocco? Nothing, nothing, nothing at all. Some Jews left. Almost all of them stay because at the time Morocco was still under French rule. The Jews had a relatively good life there. But I have to say, and I know this from personal experience of meeting somebody, that the, there were Jews living everywhere in Morocco. It wasn't like here, where the Jews live in, you know, Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, Winnipeg, and pretty well. Vancouver, and that's 95% of all the Jews in Canada. It wasn't like that in Morocco. They were everywhere, from the south, from the Berber villages to the cities, all over the place. There were Jewish communities everywhere. Um, what, was, what happened then in the 50s was the Jews who lived in, in the small places, in the sticks, moved to the major cities of Morocco. They moved there for education. They moved there for jobs. They moved there just for a better life, you know. And some of them were living, were Berber, Jews living as Berbers, dressed as Berbers with their sheep, with their goats, walking around the hillsides. Uh, they were like Berbers, but they were Jewish Berbers living in mud, 
Mud huts, just like the Berbers were living in mud huts. Same thing. 1956 independence. Uh, again, there were some celebrations. There might have been, there was definitely anti-European demonstrations and anti-French demonstrations and not much anti-Jewish demonstrations, but the Jews got a chill. They said, we may be okay now, but who knows what the future is going to bring, right? Like, who knows? Uh, this is another independent Arab country. They're already enemies of Israel because Israel fought a war in 1948. They fought a war in 1956 against Egypt. And so the Jews, if they didn't pick up and leave, they definitely started packing mentally, right? You, 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 you could understand that, right? 1967 war, that was the, that really marked the big exodus because the 67 war that Israel fought and won against Egypt, against Syria, against Jordan, really put the Jews on one side and the Arabs on the other side. And that's when Jews started to leave en masse, leaving Morocco en masse at that time. The well-off ones went to France because Remember, they still could keep French citizenship um, because they were French citizens before independence. Uh, some came here. Uh, the bulk went to Israel, especially people who were uh, more traditional and who had less uh, international contacts, less money, etc. So that was the big flood of Moroccan Jews out of Morocco. It happened after 67. Um, Morocco um, is special in another way. So it's special in a lot of different ways. One of the ways it's special is that the Berber population who is there is recognized by the state as an official part of the country. And the Berber language was made official in Morocco along with, along with um, Arabic. Um, you should know, or you may know, that the Arabic spoken in Morocco is not the same Arabic as spoken in the rest of the Middle East. It's a different dialect, which is not really understandable by people who live in Jordan or Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Egypt. It's a different dialect called Darija. And it sounds like Arabic. If you see it written down, it's written like Arabic, but the pronunciation is so different that it's hard to understand going in either direction, we'll say. Um, the, uh, so they made Berber an official language. When I went to Morocco, it, like the post offices, the official government buildings all had Berber on them. But if you went to the Berber cities, cities and towns themselves, there were no Berber signs. So Berber was not used at that time as a written language. It may be coming into effect, but it wasn't at the time. But the recognition is what's very important. The other thing that's important is that they didn't put down French. They didn't say, oh, we're getting rid of the colonial power, we're only going to use Arabic. On the contrary, they said French is a compulsory language to learn in school. If you, don't, if you want to graduate high school, you must have French. And so pretty well, everybody who lives in the cities, everybody who's in the middle class, everybody who has anything to do with tourism, anybody who is anybody speaks French. When I was in Morocco, after two weeks, 
of walking around and asking people all kinds of stuff in French, I found one single person who said, I, I don't speak French. That's one out of hundreds. But of course, you know, I went to the places where all the tourists go. So, you know, makes sense. Um, the, other, the other thing that is special about Morocco is uh, 2011, what happened in 2011? The Arab Spring. The Arab Spring, the, the rebellion against Assad took place and all over the Arab world there were rebellions against the leaders. Um, long before that, the King of Morocco decided to introduce a kind of managed democracy into Morocco. So he allowed a parliament, he allowed multiple parties to take place, he allowed free elections to take place, he allowed free communication, um, you know, posters, radio, TV, ads, slogans, all that kind of stuff, a normal political life he allowed to take place in Morocco. You know, the, the, the main sort of split would be between the sort of Islamic type parties and the westernized type parties between the left wing sort of and the right wing sort of, but they all were allowed to compete for seats and power changed hands. It's one thing to have a democracy if power never changes hands, that's, you know, but power changed hands. But the king, his role is more than a constitutional monarch. So he really has power to dismiss uh, the cabinet, to make orders, to do kind of what he wants, to order the government to do what he wants. But he still had, you know, he still left the day-to-day -day operations of the government in the hands of elected officials. That was then, up until today, same thing. So when the Arab Spring took place, the heads of Egypt were kicked out, the head of Libya was kicked out, uh, the head of Yemen was kicked out, the, um, the, uh, got three, two, three minutes, but he lasted. All the royal families in the Arab world lasted, including, including the King Hassan, who was the king at the time, Hassan II. And uh, so that's another kind of special feature of the country uh, there. And the other thing is that Morocco sees itself not as an Arab country only, but as an African country. So African people have moved into Morocco from the ancient times there are a lot of black Moroccans. Uh, Morocco sees itself as an African country and not just as an Arab country. And you see signs of this everywhere. The last thing I'm gonna say is, is that in the 1980s, when Spain left, Morocco invaded Spanish Sahara and took it over. There's pretty well nobody, 165,000 people live in this whole territory, which is almost as big as this. This is all just plain desert. So this is, quote, occupied territory. Now, do you see boycotts? Do you see uh, boycott Morocco because of occupied territories? Do you see, uh, you know, uh, BDF? Do you see any world uh, sort of uh, organizing speeches from the river to the sea, uh, Sahara will be free? Nobody talks about it, okay? Because it doesn't mean anything to any, anybody except to Algeria where they received the refugees from Sahara in Algeria. Algeria and Morocco fought a few battles anyway, so Algeria and Morocco are enemies because of the Sahara issue. But to this day, uh, Morocco paid Moroccans to go live in the Sahara, just like the Turks paid Turks to go live in Northern Cyprus. 
And Morocco controls the Sahara till this day, recognized by the takeover. Now the rulership of Morocco over Sahara is recognized by two countries in the world. Give me a guess. Correct. The United President Trump, he decided to recognize it. And he said to Morocco, he sort of made a deal. Look, he said, if the Israelis recognize your rulership over Sahara, would you recognize Israel? That was part of the deal of why Morocco recognized Israel. And indeed, that's what happened. So Israel and the US recognize this rule and 197 other countries don't, just to give you an idea. So just to end up about the earthquake, you know, it was unfortunately around 3,000 people have been killed. There was an earthquake in Agadir. This one was 6.8. In Agadir over here, it was a 5.8 in 1960. 12,000 people were killed in that earthquake, including a yeshiva. Two yeshivas were collapsed. Uh, many Jews were killed in that earthquake in Agadir. But this is the strongest earthquake that Morocco has experienced in over 200 years. So it really is a kind of, a, you know, a sad occasion. And the movement, this, this piece of land is moving up like this to whack into Europe. And this movement is what caused the earthquake like that. Anyway, thank you very much. Um, quick, I, I, you know, I'm going to sort of slowly walk out. If you want to ask me something, ask me on the way out. How about that? And I'll see you all next Tuesday. Have a happy, healthy New Year. And hopefully your families are with you, uh, like mine is coming. So um, I'm looking forward to it. So thank you so much again.